Welcome to my podcast, Explain It To Me, where I talk to very intelligent people and get them to explain things to me in the simplest way possible. Before I begin, I just want to mention a podcast that I found. It's a new show called Why Do We Say That? It's a father-son duo that talk about the etymology of words and the origin of common phrases such as painting the town red and rule of thumb and what a hoser. <laughs> they talk about the, such common phrases that we've all used them, but where do the phrases come from? Have you ever wondered that? These guys do. And they explain it in such a fun way. They also play a fun game called Word or Not a Word. I actually listened to all of the episodes in one sitting. And then two days later, I was driving from Edmonton to Calgary. I listened to them again. Anyways, check out Why Do We Say That? Have you ever wondered why a robin and blue jay never have babies? Do you ever wonder how a bird can eat if they don't have teeth? Do you ever wonder why some birds fly south while others don't? Why can't a penguin fly? I talked to an ornithologist from the Royal Alberta Museum, and he tells me everything. I'm, uh, I'm Jocelyn Chidon. I'm the curator of ornithology here at the museum. That, that's the curator of birds, so that, that's my specialty. So I look after the collection of birds. And today, yes, I'd like to talk to you about birds, the interest of my life, I guess. What makes a bird a bird? What makes a bird a bird? Actually, that's a relatively easy question to answer. Later, we might, we might need to qualify that. Uh, when we talk about the origin of birds. But a bird, a modern bird is fairly easy to, to recognize. It's got feathers to start with. Uh, usually they also have characteristics like a lack of, of teeth and so have a beak, a bill. Uh, they will have, um, they don't have, they may have a tail, but they're made of feathers. It's not so much the, the bone structure, which is a, this small structure that's called the pyga style. Uh, they have wings usually, so their, hand, their forearms have been modified to mainly for flight. In, in, other, in some birds, it's been modified further for other purposes. They, they incubate eggs. Uh, they lay eggs with hard shells. So there's actually a number of characteristics that make birds what they are. And it's usually relatively easy to tell. Uh, if you got a critter, you got something that may or may not fly, but it's got feathers covering most of its body and it doesn't have teeth and so on. You're likely dealing with a bird. Is a bat a bird? So a bat is not a bird. For one, it, it lacks feathers. It is able to fly. It, it, interestingly, there it's evolved flight differently. It, it's actually, it's a membrane that's held by uh, extended fingers in its wings, whereas birds are have mainly a, a bony forearm from which comes these long feathers, flight feathers, and so on. And it's a very light structure. Actually, speaking of light, one of the characteristics of birds as well is that their bones tend to be hollow, which makes them lighter, which also helps them to fly. So how old are birds? As in like, how far back in history can you go before they're considered dinosaurs or something else? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's still a, a matter of some debate. We usually consider the Archaeopteryx, which is the Uruvogel or the early bird, uh, as one of the earliest or maybe a predecessor of the birds. And it, it, it goes back to the, uh, the Mesozoic period, the secondary period, and in a period that's called Jurassic, about in the late Jurassic. So that's about 150 million years ago that we find essentially a dinosaur. It's a, it's a theropod dinosaur. So it's the, the type of dinosaur that's on two, walks on two legs, and it's got three uh, 
uh, four four limbs and whatnot. And it's got it's got a lot of characteristics of birds. It's got flight covering the whole body. It's got a it's got feather flight feathers. The feathers also has a bit of asymmetry to it, which is a characteristic we often find in birds that can fly. Uh, the bird didn't have much of a, a thoracic uh, muscles like the modern birds, but we suspect that it still was able to do powered flight. It still was a dinosaurish creature because it still had teeth in its bill or it's in its mouth. It had a, a long tail, a long bony tail, uh, which modern birds don't have any. So at about that time, so the, the, the debate is whether this is in a line of, of birds or it's just uh, one of the side branches of a lineage that became the, the birds. Uh, bird evolved in, in, in that era before the dinosaurs went out about 66 million years ago. Uh, birds or dinosaurs or birds, really the early birds, really experimented with a number of, of features. They, they, they would have feathers in their in their hind legs as well. So it's it's as if they were flying or, or gliding at least uh, with feathers on both their fore limbs and their hind limbs, like a four four flighted creature. Uh, they experimented different things, but most of these creatures and and diversified also. Uh, they were water birds, they were land birds, uh, or even and little birds. And they, but most of those, almost all of those, disappeared with the dinosaurs 66 million years ago. So that there's just a few that that survived that became became what are known as the modern birds. So how similar are, I guess, modern birds to dinosaurs then? It's it's a good question because they really are a dinosaur. They, I mean, when we say, oh, dinosaurs have gone extinct. No, that's not true because dinosaurs are alive and well, except they look quite different from those big, you know, creatures and that uh, scary creatures like the T-Rex, which actually is a relative of birds. It, it's one of the theropod dinosaurs that birds are related to. And it's interesting how actually all, all those characteristics that are described for birds over time, actually, the dinosaur, different lineages of dinosaur, or maybe not different lineages as much as over time, there were they evolved different features that are now found in the birds. So we see the appearance of feathers very early in, in dinosaurs. Even there are now thoughts that maybe even not just the theropod dinosaurs, but other ones might have had down down feathering on there as a way to keep the temperature. So that's a long, a long, long time ago. We see changes in upright stance, the full limbs being freed and then the forelimbs become longer and also there, there's a need for the wrist to bend. Modern birds uh, will fold their wings along their body and so that's also that also appeared in one of the lineage of, of dinosaurs. So we can see how all those features that today we, we would say, oh, that makes a bird, actually evolved in the dinosaurs over time. And so really, even the Archaeopteryx, you see it has both features of dinosaurs and birds, and, and it really is a transition stage. And so when we say, yeah, they are a dinosaur lineage, the only one that really survived through the, the Cretaceous uh, Paleogene uh, mass extinction. So you've already touched on this, that birds don't have teeth. Teeth. Have they ever had teeth at any point in their history? So they would have had teeth. It's interesting. It makes you wonder why or why yet I guess they, they did lose them. Some scientists have been able to get chicken embryos to grow teeth. So it, they actually have the potential.
difficult to do it. If the, if the genes that, that produce the teeth are switched on by a trickery, you can actually get chickens to, to make teeth. So it's not as if they, they don't have the ability. It's certainly in their, their genetic material. But birds chew their foods in, in a different way, uh, very much so. Much of the grinding and whatnot actually occurs in their stomach. They actually, birds have two stomachs. There's the first one, it's the crop. It's more or less just the reservoir. You can fill yourself with food and you build this, this crop here. But then following the crop is this gizzard, this muscular uh, stomach that really, and birds will swallow little rocks, well, little or bigger rocks, depending on how big the birds are. And that will remain in the gizzard and that will help in this grinding and, uh, and the, that's necessary to, to get to, to break down your food. In fact, interesting because we found also stones in where we think the stomach of dinosaurs would have been in the past. So again, it's not necessarily something that birds evolved or, or made or came up with, that actually some dinosaurs were already swallowing rocks and using them to grind their food. The, the, the challenge with, a, with not having teeth, of course, is birds don't masticate the way we do or grind and so on. And so they will tend to swallow. And we can think of owls, for instance, that will all can just swallow the whole thing, the whole thing, you know, at once and so on. And so they need to really have something to, to grind it up and, and digest. And that's usually in the in the muscular the stomach lizard. So then what do they do with the rocks after they swallow them? Do they poop them out or do they throw them up? Presumably they they might poop them out once in a while. Uh, I guess you would lose them once in a while, but I think they 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 stay there. They get they're just too big and and cannot be ground to be able to go through to the next stage. And so the the larger rock will stay there until they they're ground maybe to a pulp, and then yeah, your birds will keep ingesting them until they they have what. So why do birds regurgitate their food for their young? Well, given that I, I know it doesn't seem like a particularly pleasant thing from a human perspective but I mean you given that the food may already be especially to the young they will be regurgitating to the young who, who don't yet have may not have the, the rocks that they need to grind the food and so on so it, it's a great deal of help for parents to to start digesting either grinding or digesting the food and to provide it to in the form that the bird the young birds which also haven't de- developed the muscular musculature in the jaw or, or even the digestive system to deal with that and then process so it's it just uh, make it easier to provide food for the young that that will actually grow very quickly and and will uh, we think of a pelican for instance a pelican parents first will will actually draw food from their bill at the base of the of the baby's feet and the, the baby will pick it up and then later on the, and, and that food will be regurgitated and and somewhat digested already it's making it easy for the young later on the young will go actually get almost it's it's whole head inside the, the parents cooler pouch to go get the food when it's able to do that again it gets relatively digested food and later on we'll be able to to pick it to go get it itself how have birds evolved over the years would a modern day penguin be similar to like a penguin from like thousands of years ago a thousand years is actually not that that far ago and and yes and 
but the species are being created, I mean, from all the time. Uh, there were gigantic penguins that no longer exist. And so things things do go extinct. I mean, it's part of the nature and, and then new species are formed. There are some 10,000 species of birds around the world. It's actually a relatively large number of, of species we're dealing with. And they, they, they're found just about anywhere in the world as well. I mean, the only place on the planet that they aren't found is really uh, is in the deepest parts of the ocean because they're, they're birds in the ocean, on islands, on, on land, in the air. They're birds that may be on the wings without coming down for over a year. Uh, the swifts will actually sleep in flight and may never come to the ground except to nest and to raise some young. So they've diversified that way in, in many sizes and form. There's a group, one group, one order. Uh, the Passeriformes, it's, it's the, the passerines, uh, includes most of the songbirds. There's uh, actually half of all the species of the world, and there's usually smaller species, but they occupy many different niches and, and ingest many different types of food. They're, they're quite diversified. Again, species, yeah, are born and, and are lost over time so can two different types of birds breed as in like like how like with dogs you can have a beagle and a border collie cross can you have like a robin and a blue jay mate and have babies well, that's a, that's a good question because, and it goes at the core to what, why there are so many different species. If, if essentially, if things could just interbreed and whatnot, you'd have a whole, it wouldn't allow for different forms to have, to develop the adaptations to different conditions because things would get mixed and might not actually be very, very, very successful at getting food and so on. When we're talking about a dog, dogs are all related. They're all related and, and not only related, and, and they're descendant from a one species, the wolf. And as such, they haven't, their genetic material is still relatively similar. I understand they come in different sizes and, and colors and shapes and whatnot, but their genetic material is still rel- remarkably similar. Uh, the problem is uh, when you're dealing with different species, by definition, a species will be a population of individuals that breed within themselves and that are separated or unable to breed with other with individuals from other populations. And the reason for that is that when all of us develop from essentially an egg and develop to a full, full individual, our genetic material has, of course, all the instructions that tells you how from a single cell, essentially, how that cell is to develop and diversify and, and create different tissues and whatnot to create the whole body. It, there's, a, there's a program that does that, and that's the genetic material. The problem is when you have species from species that breed with each other, the program gets all muddled up. And so you might have a gene from one form that tells the genes of the other form you should be doing this and you should be doing that when it's not really able to do that. And, and as a result, what happens is usually there's gen- what we call genetic incompatibility re- resulting in a sterility, for example, or individuals that aren't very fit and whatnot. That's actually something I'm interested in and that I study here at the museum. We have in Alberta, we have species in the making. Uh, we have, there are several species of birds where we have an Eastern forms that run into a Western form that look different to some extent. And in some cases, they are considered different species. Indeed, when they breed, uh, they produce hybrid individuals that aren't very fit, they may not last very long, or they may never be able to breed themselves and so on. But there are also species that are just about, it's not quite clear. So there is some mixture, there's some interbreeding, and we have into individuals that show intermediate 
intermediate characteristics. And these individuals may still be able to breed. And so we're kind of like, we're able to look at what it takes to become a different species. What, what are some of the things that start happening when, when the genes are no longer, no longer kind of uh, work well together and resulting in, in all things like infertility or inviability and that sort of thing. It's a long, a long answer to, to try to pin at why things don't breed like that. So it doesn't make a sense for a blue jay to mate with a, a robin for it because its young is next to no chance of it, not just survive, but even to grow to be an individual and something. Is it true that if I'm standing next to a goose nest that has some eggs and the, the eggs hatch and the baby geese see me, will they think I'm its mother? Yeah. Okay. That, that's a that's an interesting observation. It's not quite just quite like that. It's not like it gets a glimpse of you and then now it thinks it's its mother. Uh, but yes, there's a very short period after the 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 hatching of an, a bird. The bird will identify what its mother or even what its future mate should look like. And it's called it's a process called imprinting. And so if you were to raise some some geese and you were yeah you were to take these eggs and incubate them and to hatch and so on. Uh, if there'll be a, there's a period that in their uh, development that if they're exposed if that's who you see during that period of time yeah they will follow you as, as their okay so then what would i have to perform the mother duties then uh, well, if it's a goose, goose are pretty relatively independent. They come out and they can already walk and you can bring them to pastures and they'll generally know what they're supposed to do, you know, grab grass or, or, or roots or whatnot. Uh, you're right. If it's a, it's a songbirds, for instance, they come out naked like a magpie. I know you'd probably have to, if you want that bird to live, you'd have to eat it. And yes, it will become attached to you. It's very confusing for the bird later on because when it's looking for a mate, it's probably, it's got this image of what the parents look like and what it's made should look like and and so you'll have birds that may find attraction into you know into you and uh, which is no good for them i mean it, there's no future in that really so would you have to teach the the baby birds to fly or is that something that they can this do is automatically? A, a, a innate and instinctive features they would they would learn you might you might help them along the way you might flap your arms to give them the sense to do that but they would generally get it there's another period of time also in development uh, where they learn uh, uh, songbirds I'm, I'm thinking of where they will learn the song uh, most of the songbirds well they call songbirds because they learn their songs they don't necessarily are they aren't born with it and so and so again there's a bit of a time window they're listening to their father usually sing and they then the males usually will then learn what their calls should be they actually can produce a, a number of a, quite a range of vocalization if given the chance to I mean a magpie can almost talk Never mind. It probably doesn't know. No doubt, it has no idea what it's saying, but it's able to. It's able to recreate, to mimic um, the song, the call, or the noise that it might hear. There's a bird in Australia, the lyre bird. It actually will incorporate all kinds of sounds that it hears in its environment. There's this wonderful recording of one playing a, the shutter of a camera. You know, it's a, it it heard a camera and it's able to recreate that sound and 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 the number even people laughing or talking or an engine or, or chainsaw being worked in the background. In that case, they think, I think it has more to do with trying to impress the female by showing the, the range of vocalization that individual can make. So if you had like a, like a chickadee or something like that, could you, so we'd have to hear another chickadee sing for it to do its song or does it work that way? Or if it heard like a, like a different bird, would it get confused and start singing the different bird's song? 
So yeah, there's certainly the potential for a bird to learn the wrong song. And, and sometimes they might pick up on other things that are in the environment where they are. Again, there's a, that, that may not be very useful in the future when you're looking for a mate and you, you sing the wrong song and you get the wrong bird to show up. <laughs> but birds will also be able, usually they'll also have the correct song. And you're right, the chickadee will, needs to learn and will produce what, she's, what the chickadee has heard before. So why do some birds migrate while others don't? It has very much to do with, you know, a bird, given an opportunity, most birds would rather stay. And actually, now that we're seeing changes in the environment, we're seeing birds that normally, and, and including in the change in the environment, I mean, I'm not necessarily talking about climate change as much as the changes where we're now providing food at feeders in the winter. Uh, we're now, we've created environments where things, conditions may be less severe as they used to. And so most birds, given the chance, would rather stay. And usually they they can because they're not able to keep that little furnace essentially the, the the body is a little is a furnace it's got to be fed to keep the heat the, the heat on and and if an, a bird is not able to keep that furnace going it's going to go where it where it's going to get food to keep that furnace going so we will lose all um, most of our insectivores Birds that feed on insects for the majority of their, their diet will usually this almost need to disappear from, from Alberta in the winter. There just aren't any insects flying around that, that birds can feed on. Uh, whereas birds that uh, feed on, on seeds or other types of food that are available year-round are able to stay. We have some birds like uh, in the jay family, and that includes the, the magpie. They will be stashing food in the fall. They'll be stashing food. Even chickadees will stash food. And so they'll, they'll be stashing food in the openings in the bark of the trees and so on. And so they have, they have some food available throughout the year. We have only about, I'd say, only about 30 of 300 species that really are stay here with us for the winter. Oh, so yeah. it's really a minority of birds. So how do the birds know where to go when they migrate? And do they go always to the same spot or do they just kind of go where their food is that year? That is one of the most remarkable things about birds and how they do it. And, and I could go on, on and on about this. A bird, an individual can go back to the very same spot in the winter, year after year. And in the spring, will come back to the very same spot. And though they might spend the winter in South America, they find their way back to their breeding ground, to the very same path of wood that they were the year before. It's a, it's a remarkable feat. We know birds are sensitive, can have cues. They, they can measure uh, location through the stars, location of the stars, and they're able to calculate how the, the sky moves over throughout the night. They can, even though the, the sky might be clouded, they're able to tell where the sun is and from the polarization of the light, and they can orientate themselves again to knowing based on the sun's course, where the north or east or west are. They also have the ability to sense magnetic field of the earth. So there's all these different types of cues that birds have, and some birds use some features more than others, but it, irrespective, it's just remarkable that they have this ability to go back to one spot year after year after year, both in the summer and in the winter. Never mind that different individuals may, you know, that when the first year they're born, they, there's no place for them to go to, and so they may explore uh, areas. They may they may even end up in areas that normally they, they might. Uh, do they ever do they ever get lost? Yeah, they, they, they do get lost. I guess they can still manage it. They can find the food.
food. Uh, we have, I chair a rare bird committee for Alberta and, and we do all the time, we do, th- we do find people find things that really don't belong. It turns out it's interesting because some of those are sometimes the, the kind of indicators of things to come. The birds that go, that overshoot, that go a little bit further north than they no- normally would. And they're able, maybe two of them get together and they're able to raise young and, and whatnot. And, and, if, and you got this population now, we got uh, moving, not the population, the species as a whole, it looks like they're moving north, but it's just new individual exploring new areas. And some birds, yeah, are just literally lost, and but yet may find, may be able to manage, they'll find food. They may not be able to find a mate, and therefore they may be a bit of a dead end in, in that regard. But it allows for, you know, changes in the environment. Uh, I know a lot of, think of even the snow geese, areas might be dry one year. And, and so if you're going to try to, and you're looking for bodies of water, you, well, you may have to adjust your migration path to account for the fact that there, there's, this area is dry, but this one is wet. And so having individuals that do different things different way allows you to at least have some individuals that have a chance to make it and thrive. Uh, what's your favorite bird? <laughs> My favorite. Well, I have a few favorite birds. I've always been fascinated by the, the coloration of birds, how, for one, how colorful they are, but also the variety of them. I mean, how many birds are called by the the color it's the it's the black chin hummingbird it's the it's the rosy pink it's the rose breasted grosbeak. beak it's the red shafted flicker it's the and it's an area that's always fascinated me this diversity and and how it comes about and so when I, when i look at hybridization i look at how different forms are becoming made perhaps different species and they, they take on different characteristics trying to understand how these characteristics how these differences come about certainly of interest i don't know i've worked on tanagers uh in when I moved to Alberta, I was working on Western Tanager. I, I found that the pigments in the Western Tanager were very different from those in all the other Tanagers in North America. And it's always got me wondering why. I've been working on flickers. Uh, we have the yellow shafted flicker running into the red shafted flicker in Alberta. Very showy birds and with striking differences. Those have to be up there. Of course, I, I love flamingos. I mean, they're cute. They're different. They're they're really different, really, actually, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a great diversity of birds. But I, I am into showy, often little, littlest, littler birds, less so the big raptors or, or, or the ducks, the showy ducks and so on, but some of the, the colorful small birds. Why don't some birds fly? Like, why don't, why doesn't the penguin fly? Why doesn't the ostrich fly? And why do others fly? Yeah, most of the birds do fly. And actually the ancestors of all the modern birds would have been flying creatures. Flight is lost, often is lost when birds end up on on islands, for instance. They may not have predators. Uh, They may also be having big flappy things uh, may be disadvantageous if you got big storms, ocean storms that like to move you and push you around and, and so on. So a lot of birds that end, end up on islands often, if, if they're able to reproduce there, they will lose flight. The ostrich is a huge creature and it's, it's reached a size where it would be, for one, hard to fly, but also it's got very few predators. It's got very strong legs that can fight off. And, and the lost, once it lost flight, it also allows it to grow even bigger. Uh, the penguins, the penguins are in a, in a sense fly under the water. I mean, if you've ever seen penguins navigate under the water, they're quite adept and fast at it. It's just that their four wings, they've lost some of those long feathers and instead 
instead they've developed these flippers, essentially with our flippers, and which allow them to navigate. The birds with long feathers are not particularly adept at swimming underwater and that sort of thing. So they're birds that would and had the ability to fly in the past and lost it because they adapted to an environment that now didn't require it. So why do some birds live in certain climates, such as Alberta, while others live in other climates like New Zealand, for example? Yes. So it's interesting because we go through geological times and we have types, we have, let's say I'm thinking of a trogons. I mean, that's an exotic bird, but it's only in Asia and Africa and so on. But if you go through the fossil record, they used to be in Europe. Hummingbirds are only found in the Americas. They're thought to have evolved in Europe and so on. So we do know that things do move around. And it, and it comes as a result of changes in climate and so on, and or changes in the, in the level of the sea, sea level and so on. So uh, when the, the level of water is tied up in glaciers, the water level of the sea level lowers. And then we now have a bridge between North America and Europe through the Bering, Beringia and so on. And birds would move. Birds wouldn't just show up or rarely would show up. Let's say a bird from North America would rarely show up in, in Africa and be able to find a mate. And so these big Dramatic changes are usually not permitted. That's what happens with New Zealand. New Zealand has many birds that are found nowhere else, but it's a piece of land that's been separated from adjacent land, Australia, for a long, long time ago, millions and millions of years ago. And so, and it's very hard for birds that aren't ducks or shorebirds that can fly long distances. It's very hard for them to be able to establish themselves into a new area. But having said that, distributions change, constantly change, and so on. But it has to be their small steps and so on. So you, you wouldn't get, unless somebody brings out a population like of house sparrows from Europe and releases in New York City, as some people did way back, you're not going to get enough individuals to get together to be able to, to establish a population and, and grow and develop and spread from there. We have other examples of birds that have been introduced, uh, starlings, uh, pheasants, and so on. These are all things that people brought a, a certain number of individuals together and they were allowed to breed, they were able to establish a foothold and, and, and they were able to get a foothold and, and reproduce and so on. And so they've now become established. But again, oh, cool. it's by little step, little by little that this happens. Going back to birds singing and talking, how is it that some birds like the parrot can say human words versus like a robin that can't? Well, actually, a robin, maybe not to the extent a parrot does, but a robin may have the capability if really given the opportunity. Oh, neat. Uh, but yeah, generally, well, generally, robins are not known to be mimics. There's a, a closely related group, the, the, tr the trashers or the mockingbirds have that ability and they display it all the time. They'll incorporate these songs or songs usually that they hear into their repertoire and whatnot. It just adds to the, to the range of, of calls they can make. Now, the the syrinx, the, the, the apparatus that allows birds to sing, actually has a, a fairly, can produce a fairly broad range of, of vocalization. And so a magpie can produce sounds that almost are human-like and so on. At parrots, the same way, they will be able to do that. So just the apparatus they have actually has a fairly broad ability to produce a broad range of calls or songs or vocalization. It's just a matter of them. They have to be trained at the right time. Again, there's a, there's a time window when, when they're able to learn and these vocalizations. Would a parrot know what it's saying or is it just making noises? Like like when I meow at my cat, I don't know what I'm saying, but I'm mimicking my cat, right? Is that similar for a parrot? 
I, I think you're right. I think you're, I mean, the bird is smart enough to understand the context. So you might say, I even a dog, you say sit, the dog may not necessarily know, but he understands that you expect the dog to do is to hold a certain posture. So, so the bird, I, presumably the bird will understand the context and when, it, when that call, that word or, or phrase might, should be appropriate or would be, Jeff. but no, they wouldn't understand. I mean, it's the same if I heard uh, somebody speaking to me in, in Japanese also on so what is the biggest bird that ever existed? In terms of, of weight and size, I think it's the elephant bird. It's one of those that used to was native to Madagascar. Uh, I think it pretty much went extinct very soon, or if not just before the human set foot on Madagascar. It was it was like it was a, a relative of the of the ostrich. It's it's in that group, the ratite, some of the more primitive birds. And it also has there there were uh, New Zealand had other ones like that, the moas. Actually, the kiwis are related to the moas, though the Kiwis are little, but the moas were just as big. And there were actually a number of species in New Zealand of moas that were as big as ostriches, if not more. So oh, these would have been the, the heaviest bird that ever existed. Yeah. And their eggs was like the elephant bird had, had a gigantic egg. Of course, never mind the ostrich eggs is already pretty decent size, but the elephant bird eggs would have been the largest egg that we're aware of. Is the ostrich the current biggest bird or is there another bird? In terms bird of bigger? weight, I w- yes, I would, yes, the ostrich. Uh, the Australia and New Guinea have things that are comparable, like you get into emus and cassowary, they're, they're decent size as well. But the ostrich at, at two feet, uh, sorry, two feet at over two, at nine feet, they're, they're easily the, the tallest, Sure. And then at the other end we have the, the bee hummingbird. That's no that's no bigger than a pen than the tip of a pencil here. That's only about like five centimeter long. So there's quite a range of sizes within so- birds. Why are there some, like, why do birds range from, like, a tiny little hummingbird to, a, like, a nine-foot-tall ostrich? Well, they occupy different niches. They, they obviously exploit the envir- environment differently. An ostrich is just will gobble just about anything. I mean, it, it'll try to grab everything and swallow it. A hummingbird that size, it's feeding on nectar uh, that flowers will provide. It's just, it's adapted for it, and it's got a ready provision of it. And never mind, it's interesting, because those are little birds, and they're quite... A- and they feed on nectar with very high sugar concentration and they're very active they they do beautiful displays aerial displays of course the hummingbirds can fly back and forth uh, backward and as well as forward it's quite remarkable actually do you know what the average lifespan of a bird would be? Like the average lifespan of like a an, an eagle or anything like that? Again, they would be quite a range. Some birds may live only a, a couple of years, actually. Of course, some may never make it past the first year. But in terms of if birds can survive usually the first winter or first, uh, they can usually go on for a few years. Uh, some of the smaller birds, four or five years. But then we go to parrots and a parrot can live almost 100 years. So we have, we have some albat- an albatross gal on uh, in the Hawaiian Islands now she's she's raising a young chick in her 70s and that's one thing to reach 70 to start with but that one is raising a chick as well so that it's still reproductively active is remarkable so you got quite the range of bigger birds tend to live longer than smaller birds and I'd say I'd say in the range of easily from 5 to 25 years would be kind of the most birds including of a range of sizes but the parents can go on and they often will outlive their owner. 
I think that's about it for my questions. Do you want to add anything else? Well, I just, we explore some of these, some of these themes and, and topics in our galleries here at the museum. And I know we're closed right now, but hopefully soon enough we'll be able to reopen. I'm, I'm featuring some of the work, some of the research we do on, on hybridization and why some species do mix or interbreed with other species and others don't. We talk about also movements, how distributions change over time and that sort of thing. So we do touch on some of these topics. If people want to explore these topics in maybe greater depth with, with examples, with actual examples of birds and now you can look at birds in a different eyes. Cool. Well, thank you very much. Well, that was cool. Thanks for listening. And once it's safe to do so, you should check out the Royal Alberta Museum. It's a very beautiful building and has lots to offer. Thanks for listening. Hope you have a great day.